Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation, part two of our conversation with Charles Lavoie, VP of Marketing and Head of Creative Labs at WPIC Marketing and Technologies. This half is where we talk about creativity and the role it plays in marketing in the Asia-Pacific region. We discuss the growth of digital commerce, evolutions in that space, why it might be necessary to create cartoon characters for brands, gamification, and the digitalization, that's easy to say, of the shopping experience in Asia. Charles also gives insights into brand localization and how best to activate a multi-market strategy. Enjoy. By prioritizing, you can't necessarily have a photo shoot for each region. It's going to be expensive. I think one of the good ways then to come back with co-creation, that's when co-creation with KOLs in each region can help you not to get necessarily editorial type content like high quality, but it can get you a lot of good localized content that will make your consumer feel like your brand is involved in the market, is connecting with local customers. So I think that's that's a good way of co-creating. So having like precise guidelines, but co-creating with creators around the regions to be able to have a certain number of assets that can allow you to, to be relevant on social media channels there. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Let me ask you, so if in APAC, and I think you, you called out Japan, what is happening in other markets where this hasn't taken off? In Japan, where social commerce hasn't necessarily taken off, uh, e-commerce has had a big growth. I think, you know, with COVID and everything, just a factor of convenience. Uh, that said, I think across the region, what's what's uh, we're seeing more and more is a hybrid model. Uh, so there's that idea of like buy online, pick and store type of thing. So we're all talking often about a region with high density city, right? So like everything is 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 close, and then people are appreciating the convenience of online shopping uh, for pretty much all category, but unlike maybe China and Southeast Asia and, and more so Japan, there's still a little bit of apprehension about, oh, I want to touch and feel the products. I want to try. Like we see this a lot in shoes and, and maybe even like fashion where they love to purchase online, like make a list and then go to the store to like try it, pick it up and so on. It's often on their way. So that's that's something that uh, we've started to notice more and more. So I think, you know, that we're talking about integrated like retail experience, right? So offline to online and so on. That's that's something that's definitely uh, becoming more of a thematic, right? I think two years ago, everyone started to get extremely bullish on e-commerce. And that's that's definitely, again, as a marketer role, more and more of that product discovery, like decisions happening online, but still uh, not forgetting about the part of, of 
uh, you know, offline experience is, is still important. Um, apart from that, I think, you know, there's technologies are getting more and more sophisticated. We've seen really cool integration of uh, augmented reality that is being tested, but not just tested, you know, augmented reality. I feel like we've been talking about that for the last 10 years. But now we start to see like applications that are actually user friendly, actually more democratized. Uh, so that's like definitely true on in China and, and Southeast Asia, where people can, you know, uh, have avatars, can can try clothes on, can kind of uh, project like some some furniture in their home and so on. So all all that to digital commerce are some trends that are pretty interesting to uh, to see happening in the region. Okay, let's have some fun and talk about actual campaigns and ask you, what are some of the most innovative, interesting, kind of fun styles of campaigns, some some really cool viral stuff uh, that you've seen in Asia over the past year or so that you can uh, you can call out that you thought was really cool and tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be a little uh, selfish here. You're going to call out your own, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit because I think you know it's it's a part of the purpose of why that rebrand. I might I might touch on some other okay. other campaigns that I've seen that are, that are pretty fair interesting. Enough. But, fair enough. Fair uh, enough. But yeah, I think I think one of the really interesting brands that we've been working on and. Uh, where I think touched to a lot of the theories I've been talking earlier, right, is uh, we've been launching a barefoot uh, running shoe in, in China. So that's really a niche brand and a new concept that actually was not known to Chinese consumers. So it's really... Is that the brand name? Uh, so it's called Zero Shoes. Yeah, and barefoot running is ultimately like a concept that tried to bring basically your foot closer to the ground, right? So the theory is that our foot been designed to help us walk and they're they're like they're designed better than any shoes so we're walking often with big soles and so on on big shoes for running and so on that's actually a little bit counterproductive right oh i have a pair yeah i mean anybody who's read the book born to run and and meets this character barefoot ted and dives into the science of you know the foot being the most architecturally advanced thing that has ever been produced on the planet. And then we stuff it into this, this foam box and then run around and then we start getting injuries and knee and hip problems and things. And everybody wonders why. And so it kind of goes back to actually engaging the foot, letting the foot do the work the foot was designed to do when it was created, you know, whatever. And you know, that's, that's the whole purpose. And it's, a, it's, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Yeah. And for those who haven't read Born to Run, go read Born to Run. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you get it. And then the thing that, you know, the Chinese consumers, I mean, except a very few ones that had, you know, maybe born that book and so on, they were not aware about this, this concept, right? So that's where if you put that shoe a digital shelf, what I was saying, right? It, it's a shoe that looked maybe like any other shoe. You can, you know, it's, it might be a little bit different, but you don't really get the concept, right? So that's when we really needed to, okay, think about, okay, it's good for runners. What type of runners can use that? Then we figured out, okay, it's good for, for CrossFit. And there's like uh, up and coming CrossFit community. And then most recently, Ultimate Frisbee really became kind of uh, one of the most uh played sport by like young Chinese peoples. And then we kind of connected that it's really a good shoe for ultimate Frisbee. So these micro niche and micro community where we were able to work with, you know, uh, on daily, like weekly live stream with one of like CrossFit coach that had her own gym to explain, 
you know, how, how the shoe was work, was better, how to do the movements of CrossFit with that shoe and, and so on. So, you know, connecting the product with experience and then a lot of, you know, other kind of items that can uh, go into the, the journey of a barefoot runner and then do that as gift with products. And we actually organize as well a, a big kind of run running challenge uh, just at the end of COVID when the lockdown were, were finishing, where people were so eager to do outside running, where we actually had a couple of uh, thousands of people participating in a challenge and collaboration with uh with runners basically to uh you know to go out there and run with they could win kind of uh some of these shoes and, and lucky draw and they had to do special park uh, special park parkour special destination in the city we also did a scavenger hunt you know with the city to invite people to start running and kind of try different movements with the shoes and so on all recorded that to video format and a lot of this happened on on social and social commerce, on on TikTok and some you know review on on, on Redbook. So I think that's a good that's a good kind of case study that really uh, gives an example of what I was talking about. What can be done? Micro targeting, community engagement, and so on. Uh, product dis- discovery through the story, because ultimately you know that that's what's really important about this this shoe or this type of shoes is the story, the why around it, right? Um, I think you know another another interesting campaign that we've done again with that same concept is uh, we're working with that brand that's pretty successful that mixer brand right Vitamix in China and then one of the inside here is you know everyone is busy in Asia and everyone is overworking and, and like basically the thing that you can't buy right is time uh, but. A product like Vitamix can help you buy time, and then basically we made a a, con- uh, a campaign that gone viral was basically the, the one minute recipe. So inviting people to do these like recipe and record themselves under one minute and kind of blend it. Obviously, probably not all of them were were the tastiest, but we had some great recipe and some great winner that that came, and then kind of that really uh, promoted the brand, but also the product value proposition in a way that was done, you know, on TikTok, on Douyin with a campaign that, that is really engaging. Um, another one that is maybe like a little bit less, uh, a little bit more of a traditional industry actually. And that's, that's where, uh, to me, I, I think the word creativity really uh, takes all its meaning was uh, we're working with a health supplement brand from Canada. They have uh, basically a range of product of health supplement so what we did is we actually took the five hero products and we created uh, these cartoon characters that personif- personified the product. So with kind of features on, on the ca- character design, give them a name and like a little story and kind of brought them alive on, you know, like basically a... Uh, um, inferring the product value proposition and we we use these cartoons then to create a lot of ip collaborations brand collaborations and so on that again to the point of gamification really kind of transformed that from just another health supplement brand to something that really surprised the consumer and stick to their mind and then be able to like explain the value proposition i wonder if creating those characters you know, almost these plush toy type of cartoon mascots 
would work as well. I know, I mean, I know in America, they love the mascots of the teams, but, you know, and you might have like the Charmin ultra bear you know, <laughs> things, but I don't see it as much. And that's, that's really interesting. I think it's um, the APAC world adopts these better. How important are mascots in Asia? You know, why do they matter to audiences? Well, if you look at, let, let's take Japan and China for, for the sake of that answer, right? They're, they're countries that are leading like penetration in terms of, of gaming, right? So cons- like consumers from a young age, they're immersed into gaming. You know, they, they love these characters. These, they love these parallel universe. Also, what, con- what, people love over there does that factor of you know cuteness and kind of like everything everything cute the toys and stuff like that is is really popular um you know i i'm not exactly sure of of the why behind that but this is definitely like some something that uh, i could think about but just these two factors right people are open to gaming they're immersing themselves hours per day in gaming i think there's five or six hundred million uh, people just in China that are like doing over an hour of day of, of gaming, whether it's on their phone or in the computer. So this theory makes it their mind are open to that. And they're, they're they're looking for that, right? To to almost escape kind of the reality of the their concrete jungle and so on. So as a brand, right, you can really leverage that. Um, and I think as a brand could be a consumer product brand. But I think if we go back to just the the recent, you know, Beijing Winter Olympics. The most talked about was the mascot of the the Beijing Winter Olympic, right? Everyone loved it when that was launched, and so on. These things go viral, so it's it's something that is interesting as a marketer. Like, is there something I could add to it? It's not gonna make or or break your brand, but it's definitely a little addition to have a mascot that can go offline, that can like stick like stick to your uh, to the consumer brain. I think you know if we go back of uh, Chinese, you know, astrology, they're all animals, there's mascots and so on. So I think a lot of that kind of connects the dots on, on the why. And then you need to ultimately as a brand, your, your, your job is to understand what consumer care about and then present them what they care about. Right. So for this factor, I think, I think that's why it's, it's, it's a little bit more important, the playbook in Asia versus what we see in Canada or in the U S. Our last conversation on the podcast was was primarily focused on China, but um, now, uh, you know, us and um, a lot of people and a lot of brands are now focused more broadly on the APAC region in general. So can I ask you what a what would a, a, a multi-market strategy look like in the creative space? And I ask that because traditional go-to advice even through this podcast over the last several years has been that it's really hard to export to other geographies uh, because they're so different. So back to the question, how does, what, what does a multi-market strategy look like for the creative space? Yeah. And it, it's, it's a tough question and it's a, it's a, it's a tough plan. It's to, probably a tough task when tough you're task asked to, to do execute. it. And we've, we've had to work on, on a couple of those, you know, over the last uh, two years. And, you know, I think, you know, that, that principle of localization is important. But now if you're talking about, you know, China with multiple regions, 
Japan that is completely different, Southeast Asia with, you know, six, seven, eight, like decent consumer market. Like you obviously work with the concern of budget limitation, bandwidth limitation, resource limitation. So you can't just say, yeah, you need to localize or for every country, 100%. And uh, that's the way to go, right? You need to be pragmatic about, you know, prioritizing and market. So if we look at localization in two categories, right? The first, I think, is really about uh, positioning and messaging and, and content copywriting, which is probably uh, less costly, maybe more of an expertise type of thing, right? So understanding, let's say you have 10 countries across the regions, going back to your niche, like, okay, what are the countries where I have a potential good product market fit and then like within these niche what are the countries where i i want to kind of focus my 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 efforts you need to take into consideration of of course competitive landscape once you have that you might have the same product as i call about this brand assets right different messaging tactics and they might not all be relevant at the same hierarchy for different markets I'm going to take an example of a project we're working on for uh, a skincare device, right? So in, in one market, their skincare device, just because of, of price, the way they're positioning is is definitely a, a premium offering. Uh, so, you know, premium technology, premium offering. In another market, which is Japan, it's one of the most mature skincare device market in the world where they're actually more price competitive there. Uh, so their messaging needs to change their positioning, the way they communicate, right? One might be focused more on like the tradition of the brand and the history and the technology. The other one might be more focused around good, you know, good uh, product for uh, good value for the price and so on. Uh, so this, you know, it can contradict each other, but it needs to be tailored to the realities of each market. And then when it comes to copywriting and language, right? Obviously, China, you need Chinese, Japanese. Japan, you need Japanese. When it comes to Southeast Asia, then you need to think, okay, I can go with English as a market, you know, and you, you can have a certain reach. If you think your demographics are like only most educated market, but if you go with more mid, mid-level market, more of a mass market approach, then you're starting to have 10, 12 kind of local languages that you need to prioritize. So again, it goes back to the initial stage of making decisions. And then the, the second stage is really about content creation and uh, kind of whatever, photo creation, developing photo assets, video creations, and media planning, right? One of the first rule is they're all different regions. They're all very different, right? One of the fun, like the thing that happened very often is we work with brands, let's say in beauty and skincare, and they have American-born Chinese uh, photo, uh, like photos, that they've taken, they're like, oh, we have, you know, Asians, so it's going to work for Asia. And then obviously American born Chinese really look different from Chinese, you know, like uh, standards, standards of beauty. Uh, it's, it's, it would be kind of the same thing of like presenting maybe a, a Russian Caucasian to like, you know, in in San Francisco, which people would obviously see the difference, right? Um, so it's same thing happened within the reality. So you know, again, by prioritizing, you can't necessarily have a photo shoot for each region. It's going to be expensive. I think one of the good ways then to come back with co-creation, right? So that's when like co-creation with KOLs in each region can help you not to get necessarily 
editorial type content, like high quality, but it can get you a, a lot of good localized content that will like make your make consumer feel like your brand is involved in the market, is connecting with local customers. So I think that's that's a good way of co-creating. So having like precise guidelines, but co-creating with creators around the regions to be able to have asset, uh, a certain number of assets that can uh, allow you to to be relevant on, on social media channels there. Okay, so my last question, now that we've kind of worked through all of that, brand comes to you, they want to have a multi-market strategy. How do you advise them on this desire for expansion to go to multiple geographical regions at the same time? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a few factors to consider, right? So one, okay, doing it at the same time, you know, there might be we might do the planning at the same time, but the actual launch might be, you know, two months delay, two months delay. So there's a number of factors. I think, as I said, the biggest the biggest factor is, you know, budget, time, resources, and constraint that you need to take into consideration, right? Have have a plan. It's better if you have a limited amount of resource, it's better to First, focus get get some traction in a certain area, and then like launch in other areas. That said, you know you might you might have a good potential across the market, and your decision might be to you know invest across the region, right? You definitely have economy of scope, economy of scale if you do it together. Well, what if they're trying to beat a competitor to market, right? I mean, maybe they're really really competitive with second place, and they know second place is looking at the region and they want to go, but they want to be everywhere before they do. Maybe they don't have time to go the step by step approach. Yeah, so absolutely. So, I mean, you know, it's it starts with uh, getting not necessarily on the creative side, but getting the inventory into market, getting the right marketplaces. So I think there's like you you can't you can't teach customer to buy to an, it's hard or time consuming to teach customer to buy to a, a new marketplace that they're not used to, right? So and also to spend time on social platforms that they're not like uh, spending time on, right? So probably let's say for for Japan getting an, uh, a Japanese Instagram account for Southeast Asia getting a regional kind of Instagram account and then getting like the the Rakuten channel the Doyen TikTok maybe the Tmall channel and the Lazada channel right that's going to bring you traffic in terms of uh, in terms of which to do first and how to launch I mean there might be factors that are like uh, factors of influence. So there might be some categories where launching in Korea and Japan might help you have success in China right after. So you might prioritize like on a three-month cadence, kind of the Japanese launch, be able to create some assets that you'll then be able to leverage for China and then for Southeast Asia. If you're in another category uh, that, you know, uh, for example, if you launch in Southeast Asia, you might focus more your efforts in Singapore first that is seen sometimes as one of the market kind of trend leaders and then generate kind of your PR and engagement in that market and then leverage that after that across the region, the 10, 10 other countries. So understanding these factors of influence, which region for my brands, for my country might be able to influence other regions is important. And then obviously kind of... Um, creating as much to your media planning activities. There's some, you know, APAC wide kind of media partners. There's some KOLs that might have reached in multiple regions. So trying to have a mix of integrated media planning to make kind of economy of scale and economy of scope while, 
you know, understanding that, you know, each region is also slightly different would be the rule. But yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a complicated exercise. I mean, that's why we I know. have teams in each regions and so on. But we're, a lot of, uh, it depends. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like it's, there's this whole, this joke about, you know, uh, going to a contractor or like a roof or a concrete guy or something like this. And, 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 and the rule of thumb is that, you know, there's, there's good, there's fast and there's cheap. You could have two of the three. Yeah. You cannot have them all. So what do you want? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the good thing is, let's say, with Lazada that is expanding in Southeast Asia and kind of for Southeast Asia, right? You already have maybe for our brand a lot of existing English-speaking documentation, a lot of channels and so on that are accessible there so that you might not have to build as much, right? For China, it's a big black box, so you need to rebuild a lot, right? In Japan, people might be able to access the channels, but the language is a big barrier, right? So all of these things, is it makes it that it's it's hard to do a, a good playbook at, at cheap. Uh, but through all the tactics that we discussed, you know, there's ways to do it that, like, not with the necessarily big brand's budget also. Yeah, you can have it good and fast, but it is going to be expensive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can have it good and cheap. It's going to be slow because efficiency of capital, that's that's where that step by step we learn, we measure, we count our pennies as we go. Uh, it's just going to take a long time. But yeah, anyway, Charles, thanks. Thank you very, very much. Um, as we usually do, I'd love to ask, do you have uh, one or two people that you might recommend that you or what you think or somebody you think our audience might like to listen to uh, on the show that you could recommend? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've. We've been speaking a lot about TikTok and Douyin, and like my last two months has been uh, spending a lot of time with the Douyin team, understand you know their business and how we collaborate. So there's a guy called Michael Ouyang. He's actually based in LA, uh, kind of helping global brands getting on, on Douyin China, but also has 10, 15 years of experience with kind of traditional e-commerce. So I think he's uh, he's he's a good guy to talk with. That kind of really can. Uh, can talk from the inside of the channel. Um, we've also, there's a, a lady called Wang Ting uh, that I've been working with very closely for Southeast Asian market. Uh, she's a partner there. And then we, uh, she's launched her agency in Malaysia and Singapore. She's doing a lot of uh, cool stuff into PR, media planning and strategy and understanding the region. Uh, so I think these are uh, two really interesting folks that I've been spending a lot of time uh, talking recently and, and learn a lot from. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay, that's perfect. Thank you very, very much. Uh, we will reach out to them and let them know that Charles has uh, dropped their names on the show and suggested them as great uh, guests to have on. And, and hopefully that'll uh, inspire them to come on and be a part of this as well. But uh, for now... Uh, that's where we're going to we're going to end it. Charles, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Todd. It was a pleasure. For everybody who watched us on the YouTube, thank you very much for, for coming and seeing us here. But don't forget that if you need your eyes and ears for other things and other activities, we also have the audio only podcast available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, everywhere that you get your podcasts, we will be there. And for those listening to us on the audio only, don't forget that we have the video version uh, over on the WPIC YouTube channel. You can go and check us out there. So uh, for everybody uh, at the negotiation, including me and my partner, Eddie, and from the WPIC team as well, thank you very much for tuning in to our show today. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now. 
Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.